Hello and welcome to Sounds and Sweet Airs, the podcast from the Shakespeare and Music Study Group. My name's Michael Graham, and in this episode you'll hear a conversation I recorded with conductor John Andrews in March of this year about Arthur Sullivan's incidental music for Shakespearean theatrical productions in Victorian England. John Andrews is principal guest conductor of the National Symphony Orchestra and conductor in association with the English Symphony Orchestra. Born in Nairobi and brought up in Manchester, John graduated from Cambridge University with a doctorate in music and history. John has conducted over 40 operas with companies including the Grange Festival, Opera Holland Park, English Touring Opera and Garsington Opera. He's a particular exponent of neglected English music and as well as recordings of Sullivan's music for The Tempest and Macbeth, which we'll discuss in this episode. He has recorded the oratorio The Light of the World by the same composer and most recently Malcolm Arnold's opera The Dancing Master, which, since our conversation, has actually won a BBC Music Award in the opera category. Many congratulations to John and all involved on that success. John has just launched a new opera company, Red Squirrel, which is dedicated to producing and performing lost operatic treasures. In the summer of 2021, the company will be making its debut with The Dancing Master at the Buxton Opera Festival. John was a brilliant interviewee. I thoroughly enjoyed learning more about Sullivan's Shakespeare music from him, and I very much hope that you do as well. John, you seem to have a very exciting year lined up, but just before we sort of get into the topic of Arthur Sullivan and Shakespeare, um, how have the past 12 months been for you they've been very strange for all of us as particularly in you know the arts industry but but how have you found things they have i've found them better than they might have been i think is the best way to put it i think uh at the start everything just disappeared and so we were looking at a a year with absolutely nothing in it and fortunately for me i've been incredibly lucky um to begin with, I produced a little series on the history of opera, which I put out on YouTube. That stopped me from going insane. Um, and then when the first lockdown eased, I was actually able to get back into the studio to record a film score for um, Debbie Wiseman, her music for the film To Olivia, which came out a couple of weeks ago, actually. So that was the first thing. It was a very emotional um, journey coming out of lockdown for the first time into a studio full of musicians all a very long way from one another. Mm. But that was a, a glorious experience. And then I did some outdoor productions, uh, one at the Grange and one at Holland Park, and we toured a Pagliacci. So that has been really lovely. I actually went back into the studio last month to do another recording for Debbie Wiseman, a Decca disc that will be out later in the year. So I've I've been lucky. I've had some things, mm. and and I think that has been enough. And as we look forward now, lots of the cancelled work is starting to come back into the diary. So uh, there were four recordings that should have taken place between the first lockdown and now. We are now in a position to start scheduling those back in for the autumn and fingers crossed that's going to happen one of which actually was the uh, other bits of Sullivan's Shakespearean incidental music mm. so that with any luck will we'll all come back so yeah it's been a really difficult 12 months I've been also lucky that my kids are old enough to be able to cope with adjusting to online life and not so old they've got any looming exams so it's 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 been hard but Hopefully we're through it now. Fingers crossed. And yeah, hopefully we start to get back to normal and things uh, things start to run as they should. I really, really hope so. So let's let's move on um, to talking about uh, what we're here to talk about, which is which is Arthur Sullivan and his um, Shakespearean incidental music, particularly The Tempest and Macbeth, which you've made recordings of. I guess if I could just start with you. Um, so you're obviously somebody who has dedicated a, a a good proportion of their career mm. to, you know, uncovering 
lost British gems, if you like, mm. and particularly to recording and performing Sullivan's works. So I just wondered where this this interest in in him as a as a composer came from, and why why you felt compelled to concentrate on him so much. Well, it actually came from this music from the Macbeth Suite. I'd been performing at the English Music Festival for several years, doing generally um, Baroque music that had stemmed from my PhD. My doctorate was on Handel's secular oratorios, and that had brought me into contact with this amazing group of composers who, in, a, in effect, were displaced by Handel by, by the, the sheer weight of his success. Uh, people like John Eccles, and then later Thomas Arne, um, t- to some extent Maurice Green as well. So I'd I'd been performing a lot of that music, and through the festival was introduced to the Macbeth incidental music as a suggestion of something we could do in the future. And it was a total revelation to me um, to see this complete set of well, to set's the wrong word. I mean, it, it's a forty-five minutes of music for a spoken play that includes everything from a, a full-scale overture, um, little on tracks, which is exactly what you would expect. Um, but then to to find these huge scenes of melodrama where the music and the spoken text were completely integrated, mm. uh, and of course that spoke to everything that I love about the theatre and everything. Um, that uh, is interesting to me about how we how we bring music and words together in all kinds of theatre, and also to bring bring me back to the love of Shakespeare and everything that I'd done as a student uh, that I'd done at A level and these plays that I'd loved as plays and also as the inspiration for for music, you know, whether it be Tchaikovsky or Prokofiev and all of those sorts of pieces, but to find. Um, something where the original text and music inspired by it were fused together in such a, a unique way was was just absolutely gripping. And to discover, having performed it, that it had never been recorded, inspired me to do everything I could to make sure it could be committed to this because it, it it's a really, really theatrical piece. And Sullivan made a suite from the music and, and clearly always had his eye to doing that when he was writing music for the theatre and the suite had been recorded. But you obviously don't get from that sense of how it's integrated into the whole. And that was what really gripped me because um, in, in in it, he, you know, you start with a, an eight minute overture kind of thing of the, the weightiness of which would be completely appropriate in a tragic opera. And then you go straight into melodrama. You, that, that the next scene with the witches, and and all the scenes with the witches are completely through composed. Um, you 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 have that with spoken text over it. So the the boundaries between spoken theatre and operatic music were being completely broken down. So Sullivan is obviously most famous for his his operettas. You know, he's mm. he's most associated with another famous William, isn't he? William yeah, William Gilbert. Absolutely. But as you've touched on already, 
there's a number of Shakespearean works that are dotted throughout his career, you know, incidental music. Could I just ask if you could explain what his relationship was with Shakespeare, what his understanding of Shakespeare as a as a dramatist was? I think the interesting thing about his relationship with Shakespeare in, in this instance is that the, these two full-scale um, sets of incidental music, first for The Tempest and then for Macbeth, form kind of bookends to his career. Mm. Because The Tempest is the piece that he writes effectively as a graduation piece from the Leipzig Conservatoire. So he'd, he'd won the Mendel Scholarship, he'd gone to study in Leipzig primarily as a pianist and then uh, composition and conducting. He he was there for five years, and this was the piece he chose. And as far as we can tell, chose entirely himself um, to write as his 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 passing out examination piece. Um, he writes what we think is the same as the score we have now. It, it's not quite clear, and I'll I'll come to why in a minute. But he decides to to set this 40, 45 minutes of music after Mendelssohn's model in Midsummer Night's Dream. And it was a colossal success. And the German critics immediately noticed you know, not only the heritage of Mendelssohn, but um, also Schumann um, and his, his Manfred incidental music. And what he creates there is... Um, a suite of music that is completely integrated to the drama, as as he would do later on. So you have the overture. You obviously have all of the music that Shakespeare refers to, and 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 his music in the in the piece, the songs, the the mask, the the dances, the the things that that are actually mentioned in the text. Um, and then he also gives us a full scale overture, a full scale overture to the second half of the piece. And what is really effective, full musical underpinnings to the major speeches, and that's that's where it gets interesting. Um, also, um, little bits of music w- within the dialogue. So, so he's he's taking the model of Mendelssohn, that heritage from Schumann. Actually, that you know, in the in the German tradition, that's going all the way back to Beethoven and Egmont. There's also a, a sense, almost with this, that that you're that he's drawing on a Purcellian idea of of the dramatic opera. So he he has an immense success with this. It's what he brings back to London. It's performed at uh, Crystal Palace. It's such a success that it's performed again. And then we get the interesting development, which is that um, Charles Calvert mounts a production in Manchester using this music, using a, a reduced text. And Calvert had just taken charge of... The Prince's Theatre, it's sadly no longer there, but that was a, an enormous 1,600-seat affair, very close to where the Bridgewater Hall is now. And he actually produced it theatrically. And again, you've got that Purcellian sense of, of, of the, the play, but also music that is so operatic in its scope, it, it's gone well beyond music in a play. Through that, he meets Dickens. Through that, he actually plays plays a forehand version with Rossini. It's published in 1862. It's, kind of, it, it, it's what ultimately sets him up as a serious composer mm. in England. And, and as you say, we, we know him now for the comic operas, but they were still, you know, 15 years away. This is So he comes back um, from Leipzig in, in uh, 1862, and all of this happens in the early 1860s. And his career for the next decade after that is is primarily quite serious. He's writing things like the Oratorio, Light of the World. He's writing the Te Deum. Then um, Calvert also asks him for some music for Merchant of Venice. So that then follows in 1871. 
Now, he only asks him for a, a specific chunk. This is um, effectively um, a mask for the elopement of Jessica and Lorenzo. It's mm. in Act 2. Seven numbers, very Venetian. There would have been music elsewhere in the production, but that's a very contained commission. At that point, he collaborates with um, with Gilbert on Thespis and a, a light is sort of lit in another part of the forest. Actually, that uh, success propelled the next Shakespearean commission, which was four years later. Thespis had been at Hollingshead's uh, Gaiety Theatre and on the back of that, Sullivan was commissioned for some music for the last act of Merry Wives of Windsor. So he, he commissions, again, it's a very specific, it's all within Act 5. Swinburne provides lyrics for that and uh, for Meg Page. I think, again, it's interesting in, in terms of Sullivan's idea of himself and where he fits in that tradition that he absolutely refused to write an overture because he didn't want a comparison with Nikolai's overture for the for the opera of mm. Merry Wives. So he clearly had a sense of of where he was in a actually in a Anglo German tradition of this, um, and then the the final brief commission um, was back in Manchester for Calvert again, and that was for some numbers for a production of Henry VIII. And interesting, really, that Henry VIII was being performed a play of Shakespeare's that hardly ever is done now. Again, a very lavish production. Um, he writes four numbers for that, uh, one of which he then actually uses for the first of the major Gilbert collaborations, um, Sorcerer. So then we get this incredible decade of the um, of the Gilbert and Sullivan operettas, the uh, the Savoy operas. Uh, so you get Pinafore, Pirates, Patience, Iolanthe, Ida, Mikado, Rudigor, and then finally in in 1888, Yeoman of the Guard. And it's while he's about to write Yeoman of the Guard that he gets this commission from Henry Irving to write a set of music on the Tempest model for his proposed production of Macbeth. And I think for Sullivan, it brings together a whole set of impulses. You can see, you know, he's now nearly 20 years on. He's conquered London. He doesn't have anything left to prove. Um, but it does allow him to write a dark, dramatic, tragic style that he clearly hadn't been doing in the previous 10 years. The Scottish nature of the play, of course, also allows him to pay another lovely um, debt of honour to Mendelssohn, whose Scottish Symphony and Hebrides Overture were kind of the apotheosis of everything Scottish within that um, you know, German Central European tradition. Mm. Um, and so he he is landed this commission. Now the the Irving production is interesting in itself because um, Irving had first played the role. He'd he'd taken over the Lyceum Theatre and he'd first played the role five years earlier. And um, it was still the case that when the play was produced, it was produced with a lot of the Davenant editions that had come in the Restoration. The idea of stripping out all of that and going back to a, a pure Shakespearean text was very, very new. Davenant had added whole scenes for Lady Macbeth and Lady Macduff, um, added extra scenes between Lady Macbeth and Macbeth himself, primarily to, to give much meatier parts to women as they were on stage. Right, And it had also been the, the tradition to carry on using that restoration score, the, the Matthew Locke music, so in, in, in 1876, Irving had produced the play and stripped all of that out. It was interesting to us, this idea of Shakespeare Puritanism, he stripped it all out, but of course he also stripped the text down as well. It, it was in no sense of what we would call a complete text, but he did go back to the folio. He did take out everything that was by Davenant and he took out the songs that were generally thought to be by Middleton. And, you know, there's that ambiguity about uh, whether the, the songs were added later, you know, after Shakespeare, or whether Shakespeare used existing songs, the, the, the witches' choruses. So when Irving commissioned 
Sullivan, he he looked in the folio. He saw that the, the folio refers to those songs being there, even though it doesn't give the text. And so on that on those grounds, he included those in the commission for Sullivan to write. And what we then see is this two-stage composition process. Sullivan writes fully scored, uh, fully through composed music, overture, entr'actes, complete musically underscored scenes on the heath. Mm. And, and we can come back to those in a minute because they're, I think they're the, the musical gem of it and the historically one of the most interesting parts of it. And underscoring of key speeches, beautiful, beautiful um, underscore music for Duncan's first big speech with a horn in the pit and an offstage horn as well, answering one another. This castle hath a pleasant seat. The air nimbly and sweetly recommends itself unto our gentle senses. And this guest of summer... So there's absolutely um, beautiful music all the way through, but he also made an agreement with Irving that music would be written during rehearsals. So, you know, fanfares, drums, would all be sketched in as they went along. Most tragic loss is that Sullivan wrote had two harps for this production, and we hear at the beginning of Act Two they introduce Lady Macbeth. We know that during rehearsals he added harp underscoring for her speeches, and unfortunately they were never kept as part of the full score. So that that music's been lost. But we can see the theatrical workings of this. Um, of course, it's astonishing, I think, to us that. 46 piece orchestra was on hand for a spoken play for a you know i think well 151 performances this round for wow so um it's a a world that uh, you know many composers would absolutely kill for now and i think many theatre directors and is that one performance a day one or two performances a day that was it was one a day and it was you know multiple a week so it mm. it was a and what Irving did was to strip every every scene that didn't involve the the two principal characters, himself and Ellen Terry as Lady Macbeth. Every scene that didn't involve those two was was removed. So he, mm. although this was a pure, it was pure Shakespeare. It it was in no sense all of Shakespeare. So he he trimmed it right down to make space for these colossal uh, theatrical effects and these big chunky bits of music mm. um, to that sense of a of an all-encompassing entertainment mm. was um, was really strong and and that was what he was he was selling he was selling something that had all the scope of opera and all the scope of a play mm. uh, plus the plus the sort of flying and the the scenic explosions <laughs> it sounds absolutely amazing it's like a, a, mm. a phenomenal spectacle to have to have watched um, particularly that like Macbeth and it, it gives us a real insight into what Victorian Shakespeare performance was like in general the sheer size of it and and also the the commercial viability of it I mean I think that's the other thing that that's fascinating not I mean Henry Irving in in London is one thing and then Calvert in Manchester you can't fill a 1600 seat theatre night on night if you're not sure that this has really widespread appeal it's mind-blowing isn't it by modern 
by modern standards Absolutely. really you know to to have the to have the the courage really to have the guts to put something like that on every night as Absolutely. a financial viability is 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 staggering um i just wondered if we could we could just go go back because you described these as 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 bookends you know um and they they obviously show something of sullivan's development as a composer presumably over that mm. 20 the 27 years between them but I just wanted to, to to go back to the Tempest because you mentioned about how all of the music is there where you would expect it to be. It's kind of perfectly integrated with the, the mm. sound world of the island, if you like. Yeah. One thing that stood out to me as I, as I was listening to your recording of it was this seemed very much like Prospero's and Ariel's play from a musical perspective. And mm. one moment that was missing... I thought, unless I unless I missed it myself, was Caliban's "The Isle is Full of Noises" speech, which is obviously where we take the title of our podcast from. Yeah, um, Caliban's interesting at this point in history because Darwin's Origin of Species is written in 1859, and there's a book by Daniel Wilson called Caliban: The Missing Link in 1873, and he's starting to emerge as m- maybe a more thoughtful character. Uh, you know, a, a more humanized mm. character and, and, a, and a philosophical character in some ways. But as I've said, that doesn't seem to come across in, in Sullivan's music. And, and is that, would you say that's an accurate description of it? It's it's completely accurate. And actually, um, when you lay it out like that, it's shocking. And it's shocking. I mean, not just for those reasons, but it it's surprising that he missed the opportunity to bring what could have been some real darkness and some real chaos mm. into it. I mean, I, we can we can hypothesize, I suppose, that, you know, temperamentally, that wasn't a place he was ever that comfortable going, that level of, of real rugged, biting horror. But as you say, it, it it's it's fascinating. Another explanation, of course, possibly is that he didn't have a production in mind when he wrote the Tempest, in a way that was him sitting down at a desk writing something from a purely musical point of view with the the idea of, of possibly having spoken narrators. And of course, it may have been that, that his mind was um, taken in the direction of, of those scenes which are either Prospero Ariel or Prospero Miranda, that, that, that it was in his mind as a series of two-handers. Um, that I... That I you know, I can only speculate on that. But as you say, it it, it is an astonishing omission. Mm. So, when you were just you were just saying there about about it being composed without a specific production in mind, does does that mean that this incidental music for the Tempest has its own kind of internal logic, like a kind of symphonic logic, or am I overdoing it there? It doesn't have a symphonic logic, and and. Partly, it's hard now to disentangle the layers because, as we have it now, we have the version that was performed at Crystal Palace, and so we're not certain what was part of that original design and which bits were added at a later point because we don't we don't know which specific movements were performed in Leipzig. We only know that some were. We can, uh, we can again perhaps hazard a guess that some of the little bits of music between dialogue were were dropped in for London, um, but it it certainly has an incredibly co- consistent sense of sound world. Right. The the sea that you hear at the beginning um, is a is a very very immediately graspable one. It's it's in that tradition of of you know, Mendelssohn and the Hebrides, but it's very obviously his own take on it.
I think where it where it gets really interesting and where I think we can see the young composer really trying to show everything he can is the is the magical music. It's that it's the music at the end for Prospero, um, the sense of of perhaps uh, absorbing that those uh, the the currents that Wagner had set in train, of really trying to use all of the harmonic palette to produce something completely transcending the world, something linking Prospero and his magic to something more than the mortal. Mm. So it's, yeah, it's still, it's still very much Prospero's play and the sound world reflects that. It's very much Prospero's play. Everything in it is, is created by Prospero. um, Even really when, when it's aerial Mm. doing the singing, you know, aerial is still, it's still a creation of, of Prospero's Island. Now my charms are all o'erthrown, and what strength I have's mine own, which is most faint. Now, tis true, I must be here confined by you, or sent to Naples. Let me not, since I have my dukedom got, and pardon the deceiver, dwell in this bare island by your spell. But release me from my bands with the help of your good hands. And I mean, you've given us an impression of what that production would have would have sounded like. Could you just expand a little more on on what it would have looked like on stage as well? Yeah, we we don't know for the Tempest. Okay. It's hard to go to go back and and work that out. I think we know that it would have been elaborate. It would have been it would have been visual as much as musical or spoken. Mm. Um, and the production in Manchester almost certainly would have used other bits of music as well. And the, the idea that, um, that that this had, a, as you say, a symphonic logic that needed to be respected uh, was was not really in, in anybody's thinking. So it, it, would have be, it would have been a feast for the eyes. But I think we, we would have found it, I think we would have found it um, very jerky probably i think we now know these texts so well i think the 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 quite brutal cutting would strike us as um quite arresting and that cutting that you mentioned that was a result of of the the deep integration of music or the 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 extensive use of music i think the the need the need for productions to to have extensive music and, and extensive visuals and you know, quite um, elaborate scene changes. It put a um, a necessity on the on the production to keep the text to a minimum. It's a more complicated question later on with Irving and Macbeth, where it's it's also part of Irving's conception of these tragedies as about a single person, and and so there's a there's a reason outside the music and the spectacle for that removal of characters from the edges of the drama and the, the real homing in on the central figures. Why don't we sort of move towards Macbeth um, since you've you've mentioned Irving's production there. So the Tempest, as we said, sort of propels Sullivan into into the artistic stratosphere, if you like, you know, yeah. But yeah, at the age, age of 18, yeah. if, I, if I'm right. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Which, which is amazing. Macbeth, as you've already sort of touched upon, comes along at a very different point in his career. It's 1888, if I've got my dates right there. And he's sort of at the, at the height of his powers, if you like, or the, the, the height of his fame, certainly. He's a, I, I, w- I would say both. Mm. He's, at the, he's at the height of his powers and the height of his fame. Could you give an impression of what this this kind of collaboration and the, the compositional process would have been like between Henry Irving, um, who was one of the most famous Shakespearean actors of the day, and mm. Sullivan, one of the most famous composers of the day. You're dealing with, well, I don't know about two big egos, but you're certainly dealing with two big names there. So you're certainly, certainly in, well, in Irving's case, potentially quite an explosive ego as well. So the... The correspondence was between Bram Stoker and 
Sullivan. Is that the Bram Stoker? That is the Bram Stoker. That is the Bram Stoker. Yeah. I mean, it's not a common name, but... <laughs> it's not. And, and his, yeah, his day job was as Irving's manager. Right. That was what he did. Um, you know, there are, there has been speculation that, uh, you know, Irving's tendency to suck the blood out of everyone who worked for him was <laughs> <laughs> was an influence. <laughs> There's, um, there is, and I maybe need to grovel for help from from some of the listeners. When I originally prepared the recording, I am absolutely certain that I read that that prior to um, Sullivan's music for the play that one of the standard overtures that was was often used in productions was Mendelssohn's Erste Walpurgisnacht. Okay. Now, I've struggled um, to pin down a reference for that, but if that's true, that would also be an interesting link back to Stoker if, if he'd known that piece of music mm. in the 1870s and 1880s before he went off and wrote Dracula. That, that would be a fascinating connection, but I... I, I'm afraid I haven't been able to pin that one down. Maybe someone else can do that. But um, Stoker commissioned Sullivan, and what he did was to commission, you know, Irving stripped the play down, and he also redivided the scenes. So Irving's version of the of the play is in six acts rather than five. So he effectively splits up the last act. Um, so it it comes in these short chunks and and he wanted an overture at the beginning a, a fairly extended piece to begin what would be the second half um there's an extended introduction for lady macbeth and then he he obviously will have specified where music was needed for scene changes mm. and so you get some um i want to say and i i think this music is wonderful but there are there is a perfunctory quality about what are clearly on tracks designed for for getting you from one set to another set. Yeah, they're they're, they're fantastically evocative of Scotland. Um, they've got that wonderful Mendelssohnian character, but they they don't really do much. They're definitely uh, functional pieces. And then what Irving had asked Sullivan for, and I think it's the most remarkable bit of the of the whole thing, is the complete underscoring of all the scenes on the Heath with the Witches. So there is music end-to-end in those scenes. Mm. Those are the, those were the, the fixed points of commission. And then, as I mentioned earlier, there was this understanding with Sullivan and Irving that music could be added during rehearsals. So Sullivan didn't write any of the fanfares. He didn't write any of the battle noises. He didn't write any of the drums. All of that was to be written in rehearsals. And Sullivan was a you know he was a last minute merchant so <laughs> you know he he wrote everything as as late as he possibly could and and you, we can actually see in the score also you know the marks where things were added and also where things were taken away because it it's quite clear from the score we have that these scenes on the heath the the timing of the text was often absolutely precisely to the music mm. And we can see that in a number of ways. I mean, the um, I'm, I've just I'm going to open it here, but um, we see vamp bars, which were and, and there are there are various sections where there's a few, there's lots of repeats in, which are clearly there to allow you to either take the repeats or not, depending on uh, where they've got to in the text. But it's clearly meant to um, to allow the conductor to to keep. The, you know, to, to line the music up with the text. But then um, later on, the, the whole double, double toil and trouble, there's a motive in the orchestra, there's a musical motive every time that comes. So we, we have to assume that the whole scene was coordinated, that the, the, the text and the music had to be lined up. It would make no sense if that motive wasn't coming on the, on the line. It's the same music each time, it's in the same key. Mm. It mirrors the speech rhythms. So... We're in a we're in a situation where um, where there must have been extensive rehearsal to time what was going on in the pit to what was going on on stage and there and it must have left the conductor it wasn't Sullivan um, it was Ball to direct some of that so we're we're in the land where you've got these these two disciplines 
if you like, in in really close connection. A, mm. a, a play which is obeying a lot of the dramatic shaping of a sung opera, mm. because although although it's not pitched, it, it, it's it's it it must have been incredibly um, musically directed. This is a much different way of creating theatre then, or creating music for theatre, than the Tempest. Um, you know, a quarter of a century before, where essentially Sullivan's music is picked up and put into a production. Absolutely, and where you you know, and where there are bits where you have um speaking over the music, but the there isn't any sense in the Tempest of a, of a need to really tightly align where the text comes, um, where the music comes. Uh, whereas here, it, it, it's it, it's clearly all considered as a whole. You you mentioned your um your film work in the the um mm. at the very beginning of our conversation. Is this something then that appeals to you particularly about Macbeth? Is are we approaching something here that's more filmic in nature? So I, I'm really glad you said that because that's I think that's precisely what we've got, and and it's what makes it interesting because here we are, we're in 1888. Films proper are are some way away, but this is absolutely the same techniques that a film composer would write. And of course, a film composer has gets sent the the reel. They 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 then adjust the music to the speed of the of the dialogue that they're given but this is the live action version of that and uh, i think if any film composer would recognize the way these cues have been written mm. um either uh, you know where you have the dialogue written every so often above the score uh, where you, where you, where there's clearly a degree of keeping up or in some sections where there are formata bars dotted along which allow you to to keep finding one another again but it's absolutely that i mean this is a conversation it's a it's a very live argument now about whether film music can properly be considered as classical music or art music or whatever Hmm. term you have i i used to teach um a class for six formers on what the future of classical music is and one of the questions i would always try to tease out them is do you would you consider film music to be art music, to be serious music? It, it divides people very strongly, but there is no difference in my mind between what's going on here and what a film composer would do. It, it's it's precisely the same integration of drama and music, except because in this instance, the the actor can hear the music, and so the mm. actor is is reacting to the sound that the orchestra is producing. I mean, I, the bit that boggles my mind is we've got a forty-six piece orchestra. This is very loud. Some of it, and the the acting. Therefore, we know that pre-amplification acting was big, but the projection required of the actors here it was huge. Hmm. It, it 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 required. Uh, something pretty superhuman in terms of filling a theatre against what this orchestra is doing. Yeah, there's that old um, sort of derogatory phrase, park and bark, isn't there, for uh, for a Shakespearean (laughs) actor. But you can see why that might have been a necessity in the same way why, you know, opera singers have to deliver in a certain way because of the sound that they're working against. You can, you can see now why that style of acting came into being. Absolutely. I mean, he doesn't he doesn't spare the singers at all. Or mm. well, sorry, I, I've just said singers, and it's a kind of Freudian <laughs> slip. He doesn't spare the actors. Yeah, we must, you know, and they must have been using a, a, you know, a very very supported, you know, oratorical style. Mm. This can't have been conversational. It can't have been naturalistic, and and there and therefore you know it's taking us into a very heightened. You know, a heightened acting world as well as a heightened musical and uh, visual world. Mm. Um, well, my my question to you initially was going to be um, about how Sullivan depicts the central couple, because this is a really famous production, not just for Sullivan's music, but but visually. You know, probably most famously, there's there's the painting of Ellen Terry who who plays Lady Macbeth by John Singer Sargent with the the massive green and blue um, sort of beetle wing yeah. dress, which in my mind made me think, well, she must have been very, very prominent in this production. 
although there's there's actually not much music from for Lady Macbeth, if if I'm right. So this is where we're unfortunately la- lacking the mm. music that was written during rehearsals. So okay. she, there's this absolutely wonderful introduction to her with two harps at the beginning of Act Two. Really fantastic portrait of the character. Unfortunately, the the rest of the music that under, underscored her dialogue was of that last minute nature. It was done in rehearsals. It probably was only ever written in the harp player's own parts and so it doesn't survive so we're unfortunately um, lacking that and that's a great tragedy But it's interesting because you've got you've got me thinking now based on what you said about Caliban, and I think what's interesting about this score is that the witches and Lady Macbeth are are much more present than Macbeth himself in the music. Right. I mean, okay. Absolutely. You know, he he must have dominated the stage. There, there can be no question that Irving would have absolutely dominated this. And maybe the overture. Maybe you can see the overture as him. But actually, it's the witch's music that that we find it's picked up from the overture for the witches later. Um, there's very beautiful music for Duncan. There's this incredibly evocative music for her. Banquo's ghost we get hints of both before and then and then during the feast. So those things come out really clearly. Um, but the central character himself doesn't seem to figure in the music in, in quite such a definite way the music's providing the, the the platform and it's the 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 musical and psychological landscape mm. but but macbeth himself exists in the music really through his relationship with the witches right so is is that saying anything particularly about him as a character then that he he doesn't have access to a musical world or am i reading too much into that is it more of a practical reason so irving's portrayal was controversial because he was the first person and and you know probably one of the only people to completely remove any sense of of character development from macbeth he he played the character as outright evil conniving ambitious unscrupulous from the off mm. So part of his uh, part of his take on on the the person and the piece was that, that there's there's no real change in this character, right? And and I think whether deliberately or not, it, it it seems to be possible that Sullivan just didn't didn't find. I mean, he of course Sullivan wouldn't necessarily have known that when he wrote the music, but he would have heard of the way Irving had done it four years earlier. Um, and he would have obviously seen in rehearsals. I think that that sense of a really complicated character is not was not there in Irving's portrayal of it, mm. and and that that may be a reason that it it doesn't come through in in Sullivan's score, which you know where the, the where Scotland is a character, and the witches are a character, and and Banquet's ghost is a character, and, and she is a character. But he he's in a way he moves through this. He he Macbeth the person moves through this without um without a, a clear core okay there's no sense that he's being controlled by the music with with you know it being associated with the witches and his his wife even even the landscape i i think if you'd said that to irving he would have not been <laughs> <laughs> i'll drop that idea then <laughs> yeah um but whether but whether that was in Sullivan's mind is is far more plausible mm. because you know he is control those those scenes with the witches because because the music is constant they they are completely choreographed there's there's no room for a, and there's certainly no room for an actor to to improvise in there because the the whole thing is so controlled so if you like that idea that the the environment 
of which the witches are a part, are absolutely in control of this drama, it becomes really strong. When shall we three meet again? In thunder, lightning, and in rain? When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle's lost and won. That will be our set of sun. Well, the place upon the heath, there to meet with Macbeth. I come, Grimalkin, Paddock calls. Fair is foul, and foul is fair. Hover through the fog and filthy air. Just a final question on on Macbeth. You've mentioned, you know, we've got a real sense of, of Victorian Shakespeare performances, how enormous in scope these these productions were. But Macbeth is a very tight play you know it's the shortest of Shakespeare's mm. tragedies it's it's very sort of tautly constructed and and pretty pretty fast paced really yeah um, and I mean hence its popularity yeah and you know the addition of music and the extension of the of the production in other ways um I mean this this becomes quite a you know an enormous thing um what what was the sort of critical response then to this was it you know fairly fairly positive or oh it was it was it was absolutely positive and that that run of performances yeah it was it was hugely well received and and it was revived later on again and and a version of it went on tour i i think without such elaborate music it's worth remembering that you know yes you know macbeth is very taut and this was still quite taut for a victorian evening yeah, it's worth remembering that when Gilbert and Sullivan were were doing their Savoy operas, it was often you would have a um, a curtain raiser before it, so the people's appetite for for a long evening was was much greater than ours. And you know, two and a half, three hours was was probably still considered as a society. Tight. They just had more stamina than than we did. <laughs> and, and yeah, and, and fewer other things to do. You know, no, no cinema. YouTube no hasn't been invented. Yeah, kind of yeah. 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 Um, I think we've got a really great sense there of, of, of Sullivan's development as a as a composer, um, and also the development of Victorian Shakespeare performance. But I just wondered if we could talk about real recordings of these these pieces. You're, you're mm, faced with these fairly gargantuan undertakings if you like although maybe they're not so much when you when you take them out of the context of the production but i just wondered essentially how you go about pulling everything um together and what what the process of recording was like because you're dealing with the orchestral force but you're also dealing with actors and singers as well so i just wondered if i could get your perspective on that yeah of course I mean, what makes it really difficult in a recording environment to get this sense of a whole is that, of course, you, you end up inevitably doing things out of order. So you you have to go in with an internal sense of of what the architecture of this is. We worked incredibly hard and Will Parry worked really hard to create um, a performing version of the dialogue uh, of the text that was just enough to keep each of these pieces in context uh, and to you know not not so that we lost the thread of it's obviously primarily a, a recording of the music but but to just give that dramatic context all the way through we had Simon Callow being mm. astonishing single you know, one actor incarnation of, of all the roles and that actually gave it a, a central coherence because I had, I had a, a completely sort of well thought out, I hope, um, view of what the what the musical shape of this was, and he had an equally thoroughly thought through version of what the shape of this dialogue was. So, 
in a way, if, if we could mesh what we were doing together, then we were going to be all right. Um, but it, it did rely on on both of us having having that in our in our heads as this stuff comes in from different directions and in different orders. It it was really helpful that we did actually start at the beginning. We did start with the overture, and we were able to start with those big witch scenes because they they put you into the sound world. And mm. the and once you've done those, I think you then understand where you are. You understand where musically you are. Actually, the same with the Tempest. We recorded it at a slightly different time, but we took exactly the same approach. And and by starting with those big numbers, the the overture and the overture to Act Four. They really ground you in a in a sound world. So that was how that was how we did it. We we started there, and then everything kind of emerges reasonably naturally from that. We also did the witches' music quite soon after we'd done the overture, which has the same music, but it means that you're then introducing those vocal elements into something where where we've already got the sense of of style and the sense of pace. Um, and then Simon was able to to weave his dialogue in, but we all the dialogue that is with orchestra we did live. We we did it wow. all in we did it all in situ. Mm. Simon, the, the bits of dialogue that that we that we recorded to link were were done without the orchestra there, but we did all of that in the room um, because uh, for all those reasons, really the the wish to have the two things really firing off one another for him to be able to feel the power of the orchestra under him when he was doing it to get that very elevated uh, way of producing and 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 acting the dialogue and also for the orchestra to understand exactly what lines they were pointing mm. it, it made it harder but i think it was a really valuable way to do it that we we were respecting that idea that the words and the music couldn't be pulled apart mm. that makes absolute sense as well from what you said earlier about the the, the sinking if you like of, of yeah. actor and and music and maybe just just leads me on to another question about this process is is how conscious you were of wanting to sort of pay homage to what sullivan and calverts and irving's ideas were versus um putting your own spin on things, did you did you have a sense of of trying to keep those two things in balance? I I did. I mean, it's a very specific example of the the internal monologue I always have going into the recording studio of something that's unknown, because you always have that sense that you want to do this piece that maybe getting its only recording, you want to do it utter justice you want it to be successful you want it to be sold as well as you can but you mustn't diverge too far from what you know its context was and and particularly when you've got things like metronome markings and and other things like that you know the the temptation to to kind of add a bit of fire of your own to something is is strong if you if you want to bring a piece to the public's attention but but at the same time you you you've got to respect the nuts and bolts of the score because you you've got to make sure that this one recording is is a completely faithful representation of of what the composer wrote and that's often about tempo it's often about balance and ten, you you have to, I think I feel quite strongly you have to rein in any temptations to overly finesse to, to finesse beyond um, a certain point if you've got a a rare piece and this is a very uh, extreme version of that. I mean, this isn't the way I would play Shakespeare. This isn't this isn't the tradition that I've grown up watching. This isn't this is this is not a part of any of the sort of post-critical editions, uh, post seeing what happens in, at the Globe when you actually put these plays back into something approaching an original context. You know, we know that vastly different things happen to the playing style, the speed of dialogue. The levels of naturalism is all those things that are completely integral now to the way we approach playing Shakespeare that you have to put aside because that that's not the world we're in. So I felt very strongly that we had to we had to respect the acting style that Irving had brought to this because it's that's clearly what Sullivan's responding to. 
it's clearly an absolute partnership between a composer and actor and an idea of of a, of a Shakespearean production which is a very long way from ours but is but is closer to opera you know i think yeah. i think it is uh, a world that we would all recognize as as operatic that mm. that heightened um heightened sense you know we use operatic as a as sometimes in a derogatory way to to refer to things which which are too much and this is i don't think this is too much but it's a lot this is this is um this is rich red meat mm. <laughs> well, a great way of describing it yeah but, um since you mentioned that term operatic and you've said you've said on a few occasions throughout our conversation that that there's a sense of opera within the music and within these productions i suppose the the big elephant in the room for a <laughs> composer who's who's most famous for his comic operas and who clearly has Shakespeare as another very important figure mm. throughout his career is why was there never, or maybe there was an attempt to write a Shakespearean opera at some point, but, but if there wasn't, why, why did that never happen for Sullivan? I mean, it's an absolutely fascinating question. And, and I, I confess, I don't know the answer. I think, I think he would have felt probably that that was too great a burden to put on himself. I mean, the, the, um, the sense or the veneration with which Shakespeare was held in by this point, mm. I think would have made many composers tremble. Um, of course, you know, Verdi is doing precisely that at, at almost exactly this moment. But I, I think easier in translation. You know, I mean, Verdi's and, and you know, Verdi's libretti are not... Um, are not direct because even Britain found that that's a challenge. What, what do you do? Um, what do you do with the text? You, you you can't you can't be faithful to the text and be faithful to opera at once. So I'm sure that would have pulled at him. Um, and he is at this point writing some of his most serious music. So Yeoman of the Guard is the most serious and operatic of the Savoy operas. He'd um, just written the Golden Legend, which is a another you know big dark oratorio, um, you know with with full chorus of devils and lightning strikes and and a great deal of um, well Sturm und Drang I think is the word I probably want to use it, it t- takes us into a much darker world, um, but I don't know I I think he would probably have balked at at taking that those texts and actually setting them to music other than the ones of course that that were written for that for that reason mm. just to kind of finish off you've mentioned that there are these three other pieces of incidental music for merchant of venice merry wives and henry the eighth and you said that you had plans to record them so i just wondered when when that might be happening now <laughs> <laughs> Now that's a really difficult question. We should have recorded them in January alongside the the um, oratorio, the Martyr of Antioch, which um, was a little a few years before this. It was in eighteen eighty, so we should have been recording that in January. Of course, you know, we can't we can't rehearse with large choruses at the moment, so I, we may be a couple of years away from that now. I think getting that back in the diary is going to be one of the more complicated things um sullivan's ballet the Ile enchanté which was written in 1864 we were due to do last april that i would hope is a simpler matter with without the the issues of large choral forces we should be able to do that rather sooner well fingers crossed i really hope that um some of these uh lesser known sullivan works can can sort of receive the attention that they've perhaps not been given. Today. I really hope so. And I think these are particularly the ones we've been talking about today, they are so theatrical, but they they need, and this is an appeal to any imaginative producers out there, they need someone to take them and put them on stage in a way that reimagines them because we don't have this world anymore. Mm. We need to find a way of bringing five or six actors and a symphony orchestra into a theatrical space and to make these happen because they have such power and they have such an incredible sense of place and of dramatic drive. And 
wonderful, wonderful interrelationship between the words and the music that they should be on a stage. I completely agree. And um, I think that's a great place to um, leave our conversation. Well, thank you ever so much for having me. No, absolutely. It's been an absolute pleasure talking with you um, about uh, Sullivan's Shakespeare music and finding out more about this composer and finding out more about his relationship with Shakespeare and these two particularly fascinating productions that he worked on. Um, and I should just mention at the end of our conversation that, that if you want to listen to um, the Tempest incidental music and the Macbeth incidental music, then John Andrews' recording of those with the BBC Concert Orchestra and Mary Bevan, Fleur Wynne and Simon Callow and the BBC Singers um, is available on the Dutton Epoch label. And I fully recommend um, listening to it. It's an absolutely brilliant recording, a really fascinating listen as well. So, um, John Andrews, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Michael. Michael.